When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. It's a photo word story time. 129 is the one that comes after 128, which was our two-hour extravaganza last week, Jeff. This won't be quite so extensive this week, although we will have new numbers. And as promised, revisits on a regular story time. It's been a while since then. Hello to you. I think you're still in Portugal, or have you moved over to Spain? Um, I'm, I'm going through Spain on my way home. So the post-India break section of, of life is coming to an end. I'll be back home in a few days time um you're about to head off to hong kong to go to the fair break invitational so we 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 keep on moving around but we still find time even while in spain to research story time numbers something that my traveling companions are thrilled about that (laughs) i've spent quite a lot of my time in the last couple of weeks doing this (laughs) and you know what i still like doing it and it's a race against the clock Today, can we record an episode of Storytime before I get kicked out of the accommodation that I'm in that I'm supposed to check out of in an hour? But I'm hoping, and you will have experienced this before with me, Adam, I'm, I'm thinking there might be a bit of bit of grey area there. There might be some blurring that's possible with that time and that they're not necessarily going to bang on the door at one minute past 11. They might. They might. These are the risks they're taking. This is the high wire act that this podcast is. So we maybe have some revisits. We maybe have some confirmations. Who knows? Let's see what we can get through in the time we have. Yes, yeah, so I've gotten back from nursery briskly. Uh, I've dumped Winnie. It wasn't so. It wasn't sort of your, your long goodbye today. It was more like kiss on the head. Catch you later, love. Bye 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 bye. To get handball. back in time to record. That's right. That's right. Michael Voss, and- forty meter handball down the wing <laughs> to the nursery professional. Yeah, I've, I've, I guess exactly right. I've, I've done the poly farmer. Right. <laughs> I, I think we should, with no further ado, in that case, mm-hmm. get into it. What are we doing here, Jeff? We are doing. Nerd Pledge Nerd Pledge, the game that we play with the lovely people on the internet Who fund this program by sending in contributions That are not normal amounts of currency They're specific amounts of currency In which the number relates to cricket in a mysterious way And we have to figure out what the number means First cab off the rank Adam T, not Adam C who hosts the program But Adam T who is on the program with a uh, generous contribution, thank you, Adam T, of $21.49. That means the number is 2149, and that means we could interpret it any way we want, and sometimes we get a clue from the person, and in this case, we have. I wonder whether it's the brother of Jamie T. That, that might be too. I hope so. Jamie T probably loves his cricket. He's good mates with Felix. There is some chance that, therefore, Jamie T would be a fan of cricket. Anyway, Adam T, 2149AUD. Here's the clue. A doozy that I hope hasn't been told before on the show. The 21.49 should be read as two and one. 
and four and nine. Jeff. Mm, well, maybe they're both the children of Mr. T because in a, in a family <laughs> environment, then Mr. T would be the honorific that you would give to the senior member of the family, Jamie and Adam, the two, the two offspring. Rambunctious, different personalities. Sometimes you wonder how they came from the same place and yet they're bonded together with uh, the, the unbreakable bonds of fraternal kinship. Let's see. So, um, Adam, see, this is an exercise in humility that I'm doing right now because look it would be easy to start the program with a number that I have a great answer for one that makes me look very <laughs> clever that I've worked out some mysterious clue and I've got a wonderful story to tell and that may be the case for some of the numbers that follow in this program uh, but given that we're all about being straightforward and blunt on the final word I thought why why hide the truth why try to add too much varnish which is that I don't know what is happening here 2149 should be read as 2 and 1, 4 and 9. And there are a lot of ways you could interpret that sort of clue or the way that those numbers work. So I did spend, I have spent a fair amount of time thinking about this and turning it over in my head and trying to find out, is there a hidden little clue in there? Does doozy have something to do with it, to do with a doosra or something like that? Maybe I haven't followed that line of inquiry to any satisfying degree of fruition. The nine was the number that I thought this is the most interesting. This is the biggest number, which means that there are slightly fewer things that it could be. Like anything could be two and one. You know, most things have happened mm. either one or two times at least. Four and nine. So I did think, okay, is it, is it a player who has taken nine wickets in the second innings, their second bowling innings of a test match, as in four and nine, four in the first innings, nine in the second. Of the players who've taken nine in the second, their second innings of a test match, uh, Kapil Dev and Devon Malcolm only took one wicket in the first innings, still gets you a 10-wicket match, so, you know, nothing to sneeze at. Uh, Safraz Nawaz took two in the first innings when he got the nine at the MCG, Murali being the uh, absolute freak of a bowler that he was, took seven in the first innings and nine in the second, and Sid Barnes, eight in the first. I wonder how many times there have been nine wickets for a bowler in one innings, only for them not to complete a 10-wicket match. Oh, yeah, good one. I, didn't... I mean, this won't relate to your no. answer you with here, which, by the way, where I went to was a batter who's made two and one in a test match and four and nine in another test match and never played again. That was my first thought when I saw the clue. But that wouldn't, oh, but that wouldn't yeah. be a doozy. That, I mean, unless, unless it was it some was a, a extraordinarily high pro- yeah, exactly, or an extraordinarily high profile first class player who couldn't make a run mm. as a test player, but we would know that. We wouldn't need to look that up. So, I, yeah, I, I struggle to think that my instinct is correct. But, yeah, I want to know, I'm sure someone can work this out, maybe Maisie on Discord, where there's been a, a nine-wicket bag by a bowler in one innings but mm. took none for in the second. So I'm not really interested in did not bowl in the other innings because that's, you know, no. that might have happened if you've taken um, nine win. the first time around. Innings win, et cetera. Well, not an innings win because you would have bowled twice. But oh, nevertheless, yeah. you see what I'm saying? I mean, they're, other they're, way, innings defeat. Other way, I mean. innings defeat, yeah. But none for and nine for, that's an interesting subcategory. Mm. There could be a, a cricket monthly piece in that. Ideally, a nine for and a none for in a loss. I know that Kapil Dev took nine for. I think Kapil Dev's nine for was in a loss. I reckon the Windies won that test match. Anyway, yeah. please continue. Okay. But he did take 10 in the match. Yeah, it'd be easy to, to work that out in test matches where there haven't been many ninefers, but in first-class cricket, there must be a nine and none at some point. Yes. Or, you know, some poor bastard who gets rained off for the next three days after having <laughs> taken nine in the first innings. So, so yes, yeah, Sid Barnes took eight in the first and nine in the second when he picked up 17 in a match. There are two players who have taken four in the first and nine 
in the second. Arthur Maley, the 1920s leg spinner in the Warwick Armstrong teams, the uh, the man who I cited in my ball tampering chapter as having very cheerfully admitted that they used to use uh, resin to get a grip on the ball for, for their leg breaks and that he used to pick the same for the bowlers, which was not to say that Arthur Maley is a bad person. It was to say that this has been going on forever and ever and people didn't lose their tiny minds about it when Arthur Maley wrote that in his autobiography after he'd finished up playing. So he took four in the first and nine in the second and Hugh Tayfield loves to fuck. Uh, he took four in the first when he got his nine wicket haul in the second. So then I was thinking, is it two and one? Did they make two and one runs and four and nine wickets? But they did not. Tayfield, 10 and 12 not out. You talked about this match some months ago, hence the little sobriquet that we've added to Hugh Tayfield's name there. And I remember you talking about this game because it was such Mm. a great finish. In the end, South Africa win that match over England by 17 runs. Mm. Um, And he has made 22 of those runs for once dismissed as well as the 13 wickets that he's taken in the match. Handy contribution. Maley only had to bat once uh, because that was an innings result. He made 13 to go with his 13 wickets, which is nice, 13 runs, 13 wickets, but there's no two and one. Could it have been bowling the match before? Did they take two and one in the preceding test? They didn't. Maley took five and five. Tayfield took eight and one, so he did miss out on a 10-wicket match by one in that category. But all this leads me to say that, Adam T, I'm going to need you to ask your dad, Mr T, for some more time on the internet at the family computer (laughs) because I need a little more from you. Because two and one, I mean, two and one could be literally anything. It could be it could be title wins. It could be uh, number of centuries versus half centuries. It could be, uh, I don't know, demerit points for pitches that are then revised to be a different number of demerit points for that pitch, for instance. There are so many variations on this. And I don't have the lateral sort of thinking to be able to Mm, snatch mm. at what this is out of what I've been given. So give me a little more of a steer, Adam T, and I will come back to you and I will endeavour to make it in a short amount of time, not in like six months. Yeah, okay, we'll we'll try that. And if Jamie T is listening, um, Mm -hmm. loved loved the album last year. Michael Edelstein. Jamie XX is listening. Um, (laughs) Jamie XX is listening. um, Oh, my uh, gosh, great great song. Well done. Well, yeah, I was going to say, if Jamie Jamie XX is listening, we we nearly tried Mm. to use Gosh as the theme song for this podcast before We we kind of landed on Earth Boy. I was quite fond of using... Would you call it the crescendo of mm. gosh? Like building to that yep. crescendo. Yep. Anyway, not to be. That's a long time ago. Uh, Michael the, Edelstein. The crescendo is the building, remember. We've covered this on the show before. The crescendo is the part that goes up towards the climax. Right, sorry. That's kind of what I meant. The, the mm. bit building up to the, mm. the euphoric ending of that yep. of that extraordinary instrumental piece of music. Aren't we hoity-toity? Aren't, mm. we, aren't we pseudo-intellectuals One on the show? One of the great show? film clips, as um, we've discussed. Uh, Michael Edelstein. Edelstein? Edelstein. Edelstein, it'd be, wouldn't it? I'm going to go five, Stein. Uh, 593 AUD, that's to me, and it's a free hit. So the fact that it's AUD has scuppered a bunch of really cool shit, and that's mm-hmm. okay. I'll just reference things on the way through before I get to my actual answer. It's probably okay. not Warren Hegg's cap number, although I'll always, we'll always have Melbourne 1998, Warren. We'll always have Melbourne 1998. Great test match that he played in there. Well, he wasn't a great contributor to it, but famous victory for England with Dean Headley and Darren Goff and the mm-hmm. Barmy Army running across from Bay 13 and, and all the rest. Eddie Painter is the closest without going over. Oh, in, yeah. Uh, Price is right, Larry Emder terms. He was 59.23, but you can't even in our interpretation of rounding, which is more accurate than the Wisdom Almanacs. We should take Lawrence to task on that when he comes on the pod mm-hmm. in a couple of weeks to talk about the new Almanac, which I think comes out on the 
17th of April, I reckon. That's We're having our first dinner, Jeff, at Lord's since the one you went to in 2019. Wow. Because obviously pandemic 2021. Mm-hmm. And then last year they couldn't get insurance on the room due to pandemic stuff as well. And we're finally back in the Jeepers. lobby. Happy days. But yes, Eddie Painter, not to be. We were talking about him or rather Daniel was at Umdebab when we had time to stretch out and talk on commentary in reference to when he left hospital with a hanky around his tonsils and made that... Famous contribution in body mm. line with the bat. Coley hit 593 runs against England in that 2018 series at an average of 59.3. So he batted 10 times despite India losing 4-1. It was a brilliant individual kind of series from him mm. and that century at Edgbaston, which I won't forget. I think of the, the 100 at Edgbaston and the 100 at Perth, he made uh, probably four or five months later as sort of peas in a pod because they're both stellar innings and both come in losing sides, Australia winning at Perth and, and England winning at Edgbaston in a thriller. And that, of course, was the series in England after 2014 when he couldn't get it off the square. And there was that whole sort of build-up to 18. Yes, Can the Anderson bat in England subplot. E- exactly. And he didn't get out to Anderson despite mm. them having some thrilling stouches across the uh, the six-week period. 593. Let's quickly go to Leeds in 1965 because we've been there before, Jeff. England smashed them and win by an innings and wrap up the series 3-0 and all the rest, but that's the Edrich 310, which included 194 runs in a day. We've done that before because he hits 45 fours, which is the most ever in a triple century. Mm-hmm. No sixes, which I always like on that scorecard. You know, 45 fours and... And no sixes. And that was all in Test 593. Sorry, my apologies. They didn't make 593. That was in Test Match number 593 at Leeds, England, New Zealand, 1965. Fred Titmus, Ray Illingworth, and Fred Rumsey were the bowling attack for England and did the damage. We haven't talked much about the latter. He was a left arm quick from Somerset. He's still going strong, I should say, at 87 years of age. But yes, he, he made his debut in 1964, Jeff, at Old Trafford when Bob Simpson made his 311, which is widely regarded as the most boring test match of all time. So mm-hmm. not a full DOB for him, but a segue of sorts. Now, well, I'll do one more non-Australian thing, and that is a really interesting statistical category, which we've delved into briefly before. And this is when the scores are level at the end of the first innings. And this happened with the score on 593, but in a most historic game. It was the final test of England's tour of the Windies in 1994 at the Rec in Antigua. And we know quite a bit about the Windies 593 for five because that's Brian Lara, world record 375. Mm-hmm. But perhaps what I didn't realise that England actually match it. They also make 593, bang on, all out, Atherton 135. Robin Smith 175 to ensure that it becomes a, a pretty shitty draw, but only eight times in history have the scores been level at the conclusion of the first innings at the halfway mark and twice in a row in memorable matches at Antigua. So the aforementioned 1994 test, then 2003, another world record where the board read 240 apiece when Australia were there in 2003. And of course, Jeff, we know that test matches the world record 418 chase in the fourth innings that we find a way to reference right. about once a series, I suppose, on commentary because Mm -hmm. there's always a side chasing 500-odd and we always talk about uh, what the Windies achieved at Antigua back in 2003. So now we've done all of that, I think it's probably going to be the collective score of a one-day international, right? Like My gut feel is this will end up being two sides that have made 593 in Mm. one one one-day together, but there's kind of no way of searching for that. That is not a, um, and believe me, I tried. That is not a stats guruable thing. So I, I moved slightly away from that. And if that is the case, just let us know, Michael, and we'll tell the story of that one day international. What about this, though? What about Big Merv and his first class wickets? AUD? 
593 yeah works for me 593 of the best that's a long way of getting here but average 29 in first class cricket which is pretty much the same as what he did at test level i think he was 28.5 or something like that 283 of his wickets came for the big v who he loved playing for so much albeit at a slightly higher average of, of 31 after making his debut in 81 82 I've always been interested in Murph Hughes' like age and longevity because he's the same age as my parents. So you know, I don't know about you, Jeff, but mm. both of my parents were also born in 1961. When I see Merv, I always kind of think of my parents in terms of how old he is and how old he looks in, in relation to them and, and all the rest of it. But yes, looking through uh, Merv's first-class career with Victoria, it was no sure thing he was going to play for Australia. You know? he, he had a pretty shit start to his career for about one, two, three, four, five, five seasons where he never took more than 18 wickets. And his averages are way out there, you know, 81, 54, 42. So, you know, as an early 20s, it's not like Murph Hughes is banging the door down for the mm. test selection. However, he does get one test match in the summer of 85, 86 against India, but takes one for 123 on debut. He tells the story about how he's sitting in the bar the night before his debut, shitting himself, and AB comes there and gives him a barrel because he's having a few pots. I would have thought it was standard behaviour in the mid-80s to be drinking before yeah. a test match, but... Apparently not as far as Merv's concerned. But yes, he, he did enough for Victoria in 85, 86 to get in the frame for um, Ashes selection in, in 86, 87. He ended the season really well with, with seven wickets down in, in Devonport. There's a good line here in his profile saying, Hughes was a notorious consumer of alcohol and food, which I, I did laugh at. You know, a notorious consumer of alcohol mm. and food. And I think that's that's another part of the Merv story, isn't it? That he needed to get fitter and be able to play test cricket. But once he got a start, he was a fabulous bowler who took well over 200 test wickets. But he didn't play in the Shield final of 1990-91. I thought he might have got back for that. But he was in the Windies on that controversial long tour over there where they were there from like February until May or, or something like that. Mm. His next game for Victoria was this fascinating fixture that you might remember Merv's told us about in the pub. We had a night with Merv in Birmingham in, in 2019 before the uh, World Cup semi-final. And I don't know how we got onto this. I think it's because his son was playing league cricket in Essex, who was with us that night as well. Lovely kid. Right. He's not, not a kid. You know, he's probably in his mid-20s then. Felt like a kid in relation to us. Very different to Merv as well, sort of softly spoken. And um, I think he was studying a, a BA at University of Melbourne or something mm-hmm. like that. I, I don't see Merv, um, uh, you know, Merv is having many common interests on, on that front, not to not to talk him down, but you know what I mean. His personality is rather different. But yeah, he told us about this game. I don't know how many of them were played, but where the Shield champion went over to England to play the county champion at the end of the county season. And right. so Victoria did. Uh, so Victoria did in the September, late September 1991. A full-strength Essex. Gooch, Hussain, young Nick Knight, Neil Foster, Peter Such, Derek Pringle, and Essex get 343. Derek, big Del boy, 68, top scoring. Merv won for 85. He was probably on the gas. He had played at Essex earlier in the 80s, so he probably had some teammates to catch up with. Then the Vicks make 168 in reply. Merv, 60 not out. This is what he was telling us about, how he batted all day long and showed immense patience mm-hmm. and was still there, not out at six, on 60 when Australia were bowled out for 168, having walked in at six for 71. So I guess that's Merv just reiterating that he could have been something with the bat had he been given more opportunities. But yeah, that Victorian team, Dino, Darren Lehman, Simon O'Donnell, Tony Dottermade, 
Darren Berry, Damian Fleming, young Flemo, pretty fun team, I reckon. Anyway, Victoria following on were eight for 56 when the rain came on the final day at 11.28am, and that was that, and they were saved from outright defeat against the county champions. I say bring that game back. Send yeah. WA over Look. to England it, as part of their preseason. Get them on a flight, and they should play in England this late September or October. If it's good enough for the Leeds Rhinos to play the Melbourne Storm, exactly, exactly. Know, if, it's, if it's good enough for the the World Club Championship where you know Barcelona goes and towels up whoever it is, if it's good enough for you know the the Community Shield between one and two in the Premier League table at the start of the next season, then it's good enough to have a four day fixture. That's what we need is more four day fixtures in the first class. You calendar. know, you know, you know what they could play for. But we've had a bit of a problem with the Bob Willis Trophy in as far yeah. as that, it, it's not got an obvious home anymore because they're not going to play that fixture at the end of a season. Mm-hmm. So it's become the trophy for the overall. I guess Cricket Writers Club have got it now, and it's a overall best player of, of the season. But there, there are a lot of those awards. Maybe the Bob Willis Trophy should be the champion county against the champion shield side in mm-hmm. England at the end of each year. It'd be a good build-up. Anyway, anyway, Merv's career, I'll jump to the end of this, 593 first-class wickets. We know he ended his domestic cricket with a couple of years in Canberra, which was a lot of fun as well. And he's had such a big career outside of the playing arena as well as a selector, media identity, coach. You know, he's done it all. Big Merv, 593 for Michael Edelstein. Thank or Edelstein or Edelstein Steen Steenstein Steinstein. Um, that we can go one, we can go the other. It's German for rock uh, or stone, I suppose. If you want to keep more of the same letters intact, maybe in a mountainy sort of sense. Well, well as long as I, all the time I spent in Victorian politics, it was always the Federal Electorate of Goldstein, and mm. now I gather it's the Federal Electorate of Goldstein because who it's named after, who I should I know. See. I should know who it is, but I don't know who it right. is. Um, whoever it was named after, the electorate, went by Goldstein, not Goldstein. Thus, they're calling it in you know, in the chamber. It would be member for Goldstein. Now it's member for mm. Goldstein. There's been that, that shift in recent times. I don't know what the German um, etymology for Edel would be, as in E-D-E-L, but it is in the name of that flower. Remember Edelweiss? Yes. The little song that they sing in um, the Sound of Music. Absolutely, is yep. Is that is that is Weiss water? Maybe no, that's Wasser. Anyway, uh, we'll, we'll we'll figure out what Edelstein means later Edelweiss. on. There, there would have been a time uh, in my life I could have sung that to you, but I can't remember the lyrics anymore. You know, um, you know that that's going on the playlist now. Unfortunately, um, yes, it is. Jody Hicks correspondent Every John O'Halen keeps a Spotify playlist me. if you're not aware, <laughs> where he puts on every song that has ever been mentioned on the final word. Um, it is an eclectic mix, let me tell you. The next number you is an eclectic look number. Happy to meet me. Okay, what's next? It, it comes in from Slim Johns. Speaking of music, uh, the man named after Slim Dusty, I can only assume there's nothing so lonesome, boring, or drear. $1.67. Slim Johns is not any of these things, I should say, those adjectives that I just mentioned. $1.67 AUD. And there is no clue, says Slim. He just said this I just want to hear a story about this number where. <laughs> it takes you. The good news is, Slim, that the answer to this is definitely right. So <laughs> I thought I would take this to a place that I'm interested in, which is 
batting strike rates in individual innings because I'm a, a person who's very bad at maths. Starting to figure out a few basic things about arithmetic has been quite exciting as we've been making this show. There are times when I realise mathematical things that would seem very obvious to people who are good at it, but they're, they're quite thrilling to me. And one of them is the divisibility of numbers to make a whole integer, right? Mm. So if you so there are certain ratios and certain fractions that are uh, possible to create there are ones which are very frequent and there are ones which are infrequent and ones which are impossible in cricket so it's very easy to get a strike rate of 166.66 runs because the 0.66 means that you've got three things divided something divided into three two out of three on a ratio sense right that ain't bad two out of three is not bad don't put that on the playlist there have been in men's one day international cricket 242 individual innings that end with a strike rate of 1.66 there are another 36 such innings in women's one day international cricket it's easy to get it because the ratios are common so if you score five runs off three balls 166.66 and then that multiplies out if you score 10 off six balls 15 off nine balls 20 off 12 balls 25 off 15 balls 30 from 18 balls and those are all plausible sort of innings those are all achievable innings that somebody can make 30 off 18 if they're having a, a hit towards the end of an innings uh, that's relatively comfortably done there have been a couple of innings of 40 that have got that strike rate a couple of 45s there's been 160 as in uh, an individual innings of 60 from 36 balls. There's been a 75 from 45. And at the top of the tree, Mushfika Rahim with an even 100 from 60 balls. That gets you the same ratio. In test cricket, another 34 such innings. The highest of those is Tim Southey with 40 of 24 balls. Of course, classic Tim Southey areas. Alex Carey got one in the test series. We've just watched 10 of six balls in Nagpur, if mm. you remember when he swept one reverse, swept another and got out in no time at all. But to make any of those 167, I would have to round up. I don't want to round this up. I want a strike rate of 167. And that is much more difficult to come by because the ratios don't come around very often. So if we say that we can't do more than a 0.5% rounding down, there are only two innings in one day history with a strike rate of 167. And they are both incredible knocks. Adam, you will know this one very well. February 2019, the headline of the match is Joss Butler making 150 mm. from 77 balls. That's still the third fastest 150 in ODIs. He went faster when he made that 160-odd in Amstelveen when England made the world record and there's AB de Villiers in the World Cup against West Indies when he made 160-something there as well. In this particular match... In the Caribbean, England make 418. That's their fourth time getting over 400. And coming out in response, opening the batting, Chris Gale makes 162 from 97 balls at a strike rate of 167.01. The rest of the team follows his lead. No one goes as big, but they score fast. They get bowled out in 48 overs for 389. So in the end, the margin is only 29 runs. And they had 12 deliveries unused, which at the kind of rate they were going, they might just have got there if they'd managed to always bat out your overs. <laughs> so, and, and it's basically the last, it's the last great Gale contribution. You know, he goes to the 2019 World Cup, doesn't do much there, looks off the pace there and finishes up and smashes a few more in 
20 over games here and there, um, but that's really the big final flourish for Chris Gale. So there is that. And then at the very opposite end of the spectrum, Adam, for, a, for an individual match is a game in 1994 when India play a one-day international in Auckland. Now, looking up this game, India are playing in a yellow and black uniform. Was Western Australia involved in this? Was, mm. you know, did, did, was, was, was some sort of um, Australian supermarket home brand chain involved in it? <laughs> uh, I don't know, black and gold, what was, what was going on there? Was that a home board thing? Did the home boards provide the kits at that point? They did. They did under the design as well. But where it would have been yellow and black, I'm, I'm not quite sure. Maybe we should get, as you say that, maybe we should get the Ranji Trophy winner to join England and Australia Mm-hmm. in this Bob Willis trophy and make it a triangular in a nod to 1912. Nice. I like getting it. away from getting played, away here. <laughs> played, played somewhere that's not either any of their places. Played in Harare. Now I'm happy. Queen's now I'm happy. No, I, I, yeah. I, can't, well, I, I know in that era, that's not far away from in 1992 when in Sri Lanka, Australia wore pink outfits to play their one-day mm. cricket, which you occasionally see them pop up on, on social media. Of course, the Windies wore pink in World Series cricket days. I'm trying to think of some others. There are some quirky ones. Well, you know, we, we talked recently about 97, 98, with South Africa wearing a predominantly red kit with, with green mm-hmm. as opposed to green with red. So it does happen. The, uh, but The Commonwealth yeah. Games with Australia's sort of salmon kit that they yes. were wearing there when Steve Waugh won his silver medal. Yep, yep. That's all I've got for you. Right. I, can't, I can't tell you why black, the black and gold doesn't... I mean, these days they, they would insist upon uh, either wearing blue or it's saffron, mm. isn't it? Is the um, yep is is the other the other striking color that you've, you occasionally we've seen India wear more. They wore the um, was it the saffron predominant kit in a game in the World Cup in twenty nineteen against the Windies? I reckon it was their their clash kit. So yeah, they, they have they have wore that, but yeah, I can't remember black and gold. Mm. Black and gold, and in, in any case, that's what they were wearing in this particular series. So here's the interesting thing. India have just done New Zealand for 142, bowled them out, should be an easy chase. But Navjot Singh Sidhu, who's the listed opener, has done his neck. He's, he's tweaked his neck somehow and he can't turn his head. So he can't open the batting. They need a replacement to open the batting. And they decide to pop up the order a fellow named Sachin Ramesh Tendulkar. <laughs> At this stage... Tendulkar is a month away from turning 21. He's played 70 ODIs by this point because he started so young, but he's got a middling record. He's batted in the middle order. He's never made 100 in one-day international cricket. Bear in mind, this is a guy who will end up with 51 of them. Mm. He's not made one yet. So Sachin isn't Sachin at this point. Right. He's, he's just an okay middling ODI player. And you can tell this because I found some footage of this and it's clearly been copied across from a dodgy VHS tape because it's got lots of static and, and lines on the screen and whatever. I think it's Ian Smith, a young Ian Smith among the Kiwi commentators, but most of the commentators keep calling him Tendulkar. Tendulkar. Oh, Sachin Tendulkar and like they, they can't pronounce Tendulkar properly and so you know that at that point he's not you know Tendulkar's not Tendulkar oils ain't oils because nobody's popped into the box to say maybe you should change that vowel baby John Burgess so Tendulkar comes out to open and he just decides that mainly that he wants a piece of Gavin Larson right he's He's not going crazy at first, but he just starts driving them through the covers. He plays that back cut that you recognise 
from his whole career away through backward point. Some boundaries stack up. Larson's bowling to him and Tendulkar just walks at him and flat bats him back down the ground (laughs) as a 20-year-old. He very quickly raises a half century from 34 balls. And, I mean, this footage is crazy. Like, this sort of stuff does not happen in this era of cricket. He's... He's playing the the whip away through backwards square leg. He's hitting down the ground and he just seems to want to hit every ball to the boundary and he's hitting most of them to the boundary. 51 off 34 balls comes up, at which point a guy runs out of the crowd, runs to the middle of the ground and kisses Tendulkar on the cheek. (laughs) Um, Tendulkar is not happy about this. He's sort of wiping his face afterwards because he's basically been head-butted by a very enthusiastic India fan. A couple of others run out and pat him on the back and whatnot and, and then get sent off again. It's all very different. You know, nobody crash tackles them and beats the shit out of them like the way that would happen these days. So then he really starts going after Gavin Larson. He shuffles and just hits him off the top of the bounce with a back foot drive for six down the ground. I mean, extraordinary shot. He charges and plays a square drive through backward point like while three metres down the pitch. He even tries an early prototype lap sweep of the kind where you get down in position early and wait Mm. for it, that one that, you know, Tendulkar was pioneering even at that point. So he gets to 82 They've still got 26 to chase and he needs 18 for 100. He's got Vinod Campbell, his old mate, batting very quietly at the other end. And then he shapes to play a sweep shot, ends up trying to defend it with a straight bat, gets a little leading edge to a a very off-Broadway left-arm orthodox bowler named Matthew Hart, who takes a return catch. 82 from 49 balls, which, as I said, in the era, astonishing attacking batting. Yeah. With that strike rate of 167.3. He goes on to open the batting 339 more times in one-day cricket after that day. That is the day that makes Sachin Sachin because from that point on, he is India's opener. For years after that, he's India's opener. He dips down into the middle order occasionally in, in the later part of his career but ends up back at the top by the end. He is the quintessential Indian one-day international opener, 340 hits at the top of the order out of the 400 plus one day games that he played and the other little bit of provenance in terms of what this created and I think this might be I wonder if this is it I'm not sure who the commentator was I couldn't recognize the voice but after he brings up the half century one of the commentators says uh, he's enjoying that contest out there he's just showing them who the master is and imagine wonder. imagine having that claim to fame and not even knowing it's you. Like the commentator, yeah. we have to like maybe send it my way on YouTube so I can see if I can work out who it is. And if not mm. that, then we can send it to Coney and maybe he'll know. Because it could well be being, being back into India, a headline writer in India has picked up on that and the rest is history. It could be. Mm. You know who also will know? Mr. Lele. We should consult Mr. Lele about this. True. But between those two... Mr. Lele is the definitive source on all things Sachin. Indeed, he's doing a film for his 50th birthday, mm-hmm. which is next month. He's, I think it's a – is it a biopic? Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think it's a documentary. I think it's like a – No, it's a dramatisation. Dramatisation of, of Sachin's life. But, yeah, we will find out through our Indian network if that is the first instance of seeing the master, which, of course, became the little master and away we go. Can I tell you a, a Mr. Lele story very quickly? Yes, please. So, so Sundanan Lele is, if, if you don't know who he is, he's he's been a journalist in India for decades. He comes out of 
Mumbai, and and he's he's renowned for you know he knows which side his bread's buttered. He he he's a he's a clever operator. He yes. figures things out. And so I learned that Prakash Wakankar, the uh, one of the commentators we were working with and we both worked with in the past, they played schoolboy cricket together. Oh, right. And they had a they had a huge partnership. They had a kind of Tendulkar Cambly opening partnership at one point where they both made big hundreds and they put on four hundred together or something like that. And Prakash, his his dad had come back from a work trip abroad and he'd brought Prakash home a beautiful uh, foreign cricket bat and this was a great source of pride and excitement and Prakasha they may be 12 years old at this point he's showing it to everybody at training and then he hops on his bike and he rides the 10 miles home or whatever it is and he gets home and he takes his bat out of the protective bag and Mr Lele as young Mr Lele has switched the bats and put his ragged old bat <laughs> inside the case and made <laughs> off with Prakasha's brand new cricket bat at which point Prakash rides back across town to Lele's house, Stella style, and demands the return of his property. It, it, nothing sums up the, um, the, the sharp-witted character of Mr Lele better than that. The, the best freelancer in the business. He, he's, uh, he works for more organisations than we do when we're doing a series. He's, um, he's uh, a, a, a gifted and capable raconteur as well, and that doesn't surprise me. Lovely stuff. So uh, that is the... well. It's a free hit, so we don't know whether it's right for Slim Johns, but it feels like a good place to start that conversation. Well, it has to be right. He's, he said, I could do whatever I wanted with it. Oh, and right. I've given so it's you not like the origin of story of, uh, of Sachin Tendulkar. Quite, quite right. Okay, well, very nice, Slim. You can get back in the queue again and we can do this again in, I don't know how many months, I don't know how long the queue is now for re-ups, but we're getting through it uh, assiduously at the moment. Rob Kingston is the next pledger today. 497 in the GBP. I'm going to do this, Jeff, but you're going to tell us the clue. Rob says, I have not consulted the Nerd Pledge Manual of Style, so I'm not sure if this is strictly allowed, but 497 has nothing to do with my clue. Rather, it is the sum of two values, 291 and 156, which represent two men united across decades and continents by one of first-class cricket's rarest feats. Well, it is allowed, Rob, because people have done it before. Um, usually it means that it is confusing for us to figure out what the number is, but... This may not be the case here. Let's see. Well, yeah. Here's the thing. 291 and 156 don't equal 497. Uh Uh, There's a 50 gap there. It's 447. So I went to Rob, who I've corresponded with before we both have, to sort of test this out. I thought maybe the 50 gap might have been part of the clue. clue. You know, Mm -hmm. we're looking for half centuries or something like that. But no, it was just a straight up error. Rob informed me and, and I was reminded that in the past Rob has been a great source of enjoyment to us we mentioned him on the show a long time ago when I don't know how this came up Jeff but we were trying to work out which mm. surname if you're building the best team ever would be most successful he built a simulation through one of the video games where you can put past players in he built a team for every letter of the alphabet and played a tournament against each other he sent us a note after that saying if you ever feel your quest for answers to nerd pledges may be taking you into tragic geek territory just remember that a 26-year-old bloke who was supposed to be writing a dissertation on urban greenbelt space instead set up a fantasy cricket tournament made up of teams that he invented on a computer game and then spent three weeks of his life fastidiously recording the resulting stats and scores, knowing that nobody would ever read it or gain anything of value from it whatsoever. Now, reminded of that, I know that Mm. basically Rob's one of us. Rob is one of us, one one of of us. us. So I thought we're going deep dive here. And I thought also the capitalization of United might be part of where we 
ultimately get to. Mm. I neglected to mention that when reading it out. Two men united, capital U, across yeah. decades. But first, but every of all, football team thinks that they're united. You know, like yeah. like Manchester think that they're the one called that. Leeds think that they're the one called that. We, we, yeah, we we do get back to football in a bit. But to start, I wanted to just like. I almost wanted to rule out first class 291s, of which there are five. We've talked about all of them, I think. Eddie Painter's 291, uh, which was um, in, a, in a county game in 1938. Viv Richards, of course, the, the Test 291 at the Oval in, in 76 to finish that famous series. Ian Gregg playing for Surrey in 1990. Randa one in, in 2008-9 against England. And, of course, James Taylor, his big 291. For knots against Sussex in, in 2015, the year before he was forced into retirement. But then I went to Rob to clarify that 50 thing. And he came back and said, no, no, you can discount 291s. And he instead said, you need to look at caps. And his, clue, his further clue to me was, we're looking for a test cap, a one-day cap, and then something rather thrilling that both of them did on first-class debut. So God knows how we were meant to get this without further intervention from Robert. Yep. I'm glad he's given us that that little steer. Now, So they're not the same, they're not the two caps of the same player? No, no, they're not. So the Test 291s, for what it's worth, Ian Callan, Arthur Fagg, Rishabh Punt, Robin Peterson and Kirk Edwards, the one-day 156 cap numbers. These are the countries that have reached those numbers, I should say. So there'll be more 291s in the future and there'll be more 156s in the future. But for the time being, Mitchell Johnson, Vikram Solanke, Dinesh Kartik, uh, Dr. Dre, Andre Russell, Farwad Alam and Nathan McCullum. Now, the last man on that list, Nathan McCullum, brother of Baz, the 156th one-day player for New Zealand. Nathball. Nathball. But on first class debut, he did do something remarkable. And I believe this has to be linked. However, I don't think any of the test players did it. So there's something missing here. Anyway, let's just go with it. Nathan McCullum made his first class debut for Otago in March 2000 against Wellington in a four-day game. He goes on to take four for 57 in the first innings of, of the match. Lovely start. Gets both openers and the, the number four as well with his off breaks. But then coming in at number eight, He's knocked over first ball by James Franklin. Pins him leg before wicket. James okay. Franklin, good bloke. Second innings with Otago following on, it happens again. Mark Gillespie gets him out leg before wicket for a golden duck. A king pair on first class debut, Ooh. both out leg before. That's now, tasty. I've tried to find a list of all the king pairs in first class cricket. Predictably, there isn't one. But I would suggest it's not a very long list, especially when you, when you isolate it to leg before wickets. Out for a king pair on first class taboo, both times leg before. Might it be there have only been two people in that category? For what it's worth, there have been 22 king pairs in all of Test cricket in 145 years, 146 right. years now. So I reckon there's a chance this works when you consider you know, those king pairs are across all Test cricket, not just when players are yeah. making their taboo. Now, Ian Callan did make zero in both innings of his first class taboo, but one of those was not out, so it's not a pair, certainly not mm. a king pair, although... In fairness, there wasn't a ball count in that. So it might have been that he was out for a golden duck in his first innings, but that wouldn't quite work. I wonder whether Discord might get me close here. If not, we're looking for remarkable feats from Test Cap 291 and One Day Cap 156 on First Class Taboo. The United reference also, Nathan McCullum was a professional footballer. He played in, well, I say professional, he played in the New Zealand top flight whilst playing cricket for both his country and for Otago. He was in the top flight in 2003, for example. But it looks like that was with 
a club called Caversham AFC, not Caversham United. Would have been brilliant had it been mm. Caversham United, but but not to be. And the postscript to all of this, by the way, is that upon me writing to Rob yesterday, he rejoined Patreon. He he dropped off the list, and he's like, ah, oh, thanks for the note. I'm back on board. I'll um I'll, I'll get another number in and, and rejoin rejoin the list. So great to have you back with us, Rob. Four ninety seven GBP the pledge, but four forty seven the number. We know what the numbers represent. It's just all about solving the puzzle from here. All right, one for the crowd, figure it out for the man named after the Jamaican city uh, of Bob Marley's song fame and the greatest biscuit available worldwide, (laughs) the Kingston, a rich, rich landscape. Hi, I'm Dave Warner and you're listening to The Final Word. Alistair Townsend uh, is a long-time supporter of the show and, uh, well, this is a very handsome pledge as well from Alistair. 53 quid he sent us. Wow. When he sent this through. 53 flat. And there is an extensive clue, Adam, which I will let you convey to the people. Yeah. And look, if, if not for Alistair, I suspect we never would have... Well, I, we probably would have found Roberta eventually and, and, and I would have got to know her at Fairbreak last year. But Alistair was the link in before everyone else started interviewing Roberta. And, and it's been lovely the amount of attention that Brazilian cricket's got through her extraordinarily engaging personality. We had her on here a good number of uh, months before all that. So, Alistair, thank you for uh, steering us in that direction. His clue is as follows. My pledge is to do with a forgotten tour that could be described as topical in the sense that it occurred shortly after the last time the ECB PR machine focused on a reset. A triangular tour after Duncan Fletcher was installed as coach and the infamous fifth Hansi Cronier test. It featured notable bowling and batting performances. Mark Elam took a Michelle against Zimbabwe in South Africa on the 30th of January 2000. England's best ever ODI figures, 5 for 15. I didn't know that. All leg before wickets. A world record then. Not sure now. Question mark. The great Henry Alonga managed rather better figures on the 28th. On the bolted-on tour of Zimbabwe in February, Craig White took 5 for 21 at Queen's Sports Club, which would have been the England record had Elam not set it a month earlier. A detour to talk about a player I know that you both know holds a special place in my heart, who went on to do great things over the next 12 months. Another interesting performance from that tour is the subject of my pledge. Now, I know with Alistair before, his mm. previous pledge related to a England debutant in the early Martin 2000s. Martin Saggers. Martin Saggers, there we go. So, And the one before that, Craig White. Um, ah, who, okay. So hence yeah. the part in the clue where he's saying, basically in the clue he's just wandered off to talk about Craig White for a while. And Craig White has nothing to do with the answer of this. He just wanted us to know that Craig White almost had the best bowling figures for England if someone else didn't already have them, which is a curious way of interpreting the flow of time and logic. But there you are. Uh, they're no longer the best bowling figures for England in one-day internationals. I'm not sure who has them, but somebody's got more yeah, than be. Yeah, I was going to say there'd be sixfers and maybe yeah. even sevenfers since then. I, I I reckon Joffre took a sixfer recently, didn't he, upon his return yeah, to the one-day team? For- for 49 maybe so right the thing that we were trying to work out is about somebody else but first of all I was interested in so my own 
digression was the five LBWs because Alistair asked whether that was still a record. It is still a record in one-day international cricket, Alistair. Murali got four LBWs in an innings. That was also against Zimbabwe, who clearly needed to learn to play the straight ball better. Wasim Akram got four against Namibia and did it again against Sri Lanka in Sharjah, so four LBWs on two occasions. And Gary Gilmore did it against England in the World Cup match, the famous World Cup match in 75. So, yes, five LBWs in an innings is still the record for one bowler in one day cricket. Zimbabwe also have the record in tests. They had seven LBWs in an innings once and a bowler named Richard Johnson took five of those. He's a, he'll be a great dusty old bastard story one day. Three test matches, two fivers, 16 wickets at an average of 17 and couldn't get a further gig, Richard Johnson, in that England team at the time. So... After the match in which Mark Elam takes his five for 15, Henry Alonga rocks up and takes six for 19 for Zimbabwe a game later, two games later. They're only defending 211 Zimbabwe and they win by 104 runs. Henry Alonga knocks over the top five in sequence. He bowls eight overs on the spin, takes five for 18 and then comes back to end the innings by ending an annoying partnership, getting the wicketkeeper Chris Reid out for six for 19. It's interesting that these early early history of Zimbabwe versus England, Zimbabwe won five of their first six ODIs against England. Really? And then with that win, with Henry Alonga's win, it becomes six out of eight. So they've won three out of 25 since then, but they won six of their first eight. Yeah, because they, they often talk about in 96, that three nil one day win. It's sort of held up as one of the most famous moments in Zimbabwean cricket, you know, whitewashing England. I know like we look back at it now and, What's a bilateral series whitewash mean? I mean, Jared Kimber wrote a great piece on his Substack about this the other day, and one of his digressions there was about Bangladesh whitewashing England the other week, and it's like not even a thing, and maybe that's a good thing because, you know, A, it shouldn't be a novelty that Bangladesh beats England, but also that we accept that when you're building up to a World Cup, all sorts of teams will take the park, and that's a post-IPL reality with with workloads and I say IPL T20 proliferation of leagues and all, and all the rest of it but yeah back then when international cricket was everything and you played your best team every time Zimbabwe knocking off England 3-0 meant an awful lot so yeah at once I'm, I'm surprised but also now I think about it that that does make sense given we've already talked a lot about the 92 win and 96 they wouldn't have played too often so with Craig White when he takes his five for 21 bowls out Zimbabwe for 131 and in that match England only win by one wicket so that would have been nine wins out of 12 for Zimbabwe had Alan Mullally not nicked one through the slip cordon to the boundary to win by um, <laughs> the least likely way to get there so more broadly this this one day series that they played after the tri series it's a rare four match ODI series um, the fourth game got abandoned without even having a toss. But what are we looking for? Like we're looking for something during this series related to the pledge of 53, the previous numbers being Craig White and Martin Saggers. I think that Mark Elaine fits into that record pretty well as English players of that era who are out of the spotlight, you might say. We've talked about Mark Elaine with his leadership at Gloucestershire where he captained a lot of white ball wins in a couple of very successful seasons, became a captain coach down there for a while. We've talked less about his modest England career with 10 one-day matches played for England. But in this tri-series came his best day with the bat. England a four down for 105 at less than halfway through the innings when he comes in. He bats through almost to the end of the innings 
gets them to 231. This is against South Africa. He makes 53, which is our number from 68 balls, which is a, a decent sort of rate in those days. And then gets the ball and does the job there. He gets Callis out. He gets Hansi Kronje out. Would you like to have a bet on it? <laughs> and he gets Lance Klusner out. And maybe at that at that point in time, you know, Klusner must be he's, – he's one of the more important one-day international wickets that you could take in an, an innings. So when he gets Klusner out, South Africa need 33 from 28 balls with three wickets in hand. That's pretty much England's game. When Jonty Rhodes gets out, they still need 13 from 10 and they've got two wickets left. Sean Pollock gets South Africa over the line, but the fact that they get there right at the very end of the innings means that there's no real net run rate damage for England and they're playing in a tri-series. Their final game comes up against Zimbabwe. It's washed out, bearing in mind they've lost two of their last three to Zimbabwe at this point, so there was no guarantee they were going to win that game. So the washout leaves both Zimbabwe and England on two wins on the competition table with England ahead on net run rate. Thus, they avoid the embarrassment of missing out on the final in the Tri-Series. Storm triumphantly into the Tri-Series final. Caddick takes four for 19. They bowl out South Africa for 149 and then they lose the fucking game anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Chasing 149. Pollock takes five for 20 and they get nowhere near it, England, that uh, majestic team with Craig White, Mark Elam, Mark Elaine, Darren Maddy and Chris Reed. You mean that team couldn't chase 149 against Sean Pollock? They could not. That is that, but they'll always have Mark Elaine's best day with the bat with his 53 and not his career best figures, but his career best wickets. He only he took three wickets in an innings one other time, but I wonder how many players have got their highest score and the most wickets they ever took in the same match. Yeah. Mark Elaine did. No, I, I like it a lot. And the last time we spoke about Mark Elaine, it was him playing in the England over 50s team, wasn't it? In that ill-fated World Cup around the start of COVID. And mm. and uh, yeah, Ma- and, and, and I like that there is a, a nice one-day moment we can reflect on too because him falling over at the Gabba, the viral video that... Well, I say viral video. It was a clip that Channel 9 used to use in their promos and all that, wasn't it, for a long time? And I suspect Rob Alinda's probably got like 10 million hits on it because it is quite funny at the Gabba, slipping and sliding under the lights on the dewy grass. But yeah, did have that moment and um, I didn't know about that. So thanks for uh, telling us about that. Thanks for steering us in that direction. Alistair Townsend, it's uh, yeah, great to have your ongoing support of what we're doing here on the podcast. It means a great deal to both of us. One last new number today. It comes in from Basab Majumdar. It is £3.41 with this clue, a combination of a couple of great innings of two stalwarts from subcontinental rivals over one English summer nearly 50 years ago, one in a draw, one in a losing cause, both rated as one of their best. They were never fated as much as English and Australian greats. These two giants are barely discussed compared to, say, a Hutton or a Compton but amongst others, they were on par, if not better. I want to induce a debate on cricket historians' Anglo-centric biases. Adam, away you go. Yeah, thanks, Basab, for that. And always great to talk to Basab about cricket. I would disagree with him about one of these players. I think he's got that demigod thing going on to such an extent that I don't think you could say that uh, Hutton and Compton uh, are seen as bigger figures in the game than one of them. The other I'd agree with. The other I'd fervently agree with, and I'll, I'll explain why. So the tours that he's referring to, going to the clue, I was thinking, well, around 50 years ago, when were England and Pakistan both here? I thought 1975 World Cup, but that can't work because there's a reference to a draw here. So that's one-day cricket. Can't have a draw in a one-dayer. But the year before that, in 1974, they were both here for test matches. India, early in the summer, and Pakistan, later in the summer. 
India lost 3-0, and both the one-dayers had a shocking trip. Pakistan, a much better series, indeed, a series that we should know a lot more about. They drew the tests nil all, but I'll come to them in a sec. Now, so to meet the clues criteria, it'll be an Indian 100 in a losing team and a Pakistani 100 in a draw because of the, the way the results went that summer. But it is a weird summer in many ways. Let's start with India. So the previous time they were in England in 1971, they won 2-1. There's an argument to make that they were just about the best test team in the world through that stretch. I mean, they beat the West Indies, which we spoke about a couple of weeks ago. They beat England at home 2-1 in 1972, 73. It's a shame they didn't play Australia in that stretch because they were probably the the two best sides going around in in the first few years of of the 1970s with their brilliant spinners, of course. And Basab's had a, a, a nerd pledge about the quartet before Chandrasekhar, Betty, Prasanna, Van Cat, and I think he, Jeff, am I right in saying that he he tacked on the end of that Gavaskar's wickets with his spin mm, or something Chandu like Borde that? Chandu Borde might have been oh, the, right. the yes, extra yes. wickets that were thrown in there with his um, better than occasional leg spin. Yes, right, right, right. I, I, for some reason, I had Gavaskar in my head, and we're going to talk about Gavaskar and how brilliant he was. Version one point zero. He's the player of these two. I I don't think anybody talks about Hutton and Compton as leaving a, a bigger footprint on the game than Gavaska. So I would I would challenge Basab on that. But that's who we're we're talking mm. about initially. And and from the get go, there was clearly this belief that he was going to be the man. I mean we, we talked about his hundred on Testabu on the what was the fiftieth no not the fiftieth anniversary. It was when we were at Ahmedabad the other week it was the um it was the well I guess it was the fifty third anniversary of that when he walked out there and and took the West Indies down. So he is well celebrated. Of course, he was the leading run scorer in Test cricket for a long time as well and enjoyed such a, a long international career. World Cup winner too. But yeah, in, in 74, they won just five games across an entire tour. None of them international. So they, they won five games against counties and minor counties. It was known as the summer of 42 for the all-out 42 at Lords in the second innings there. The captain... Ajit Wadakar um, was sacked and never played for India ever again upon returning home. Again, that, that's out of step with where they were. Like they're a team seemingly on the rise and they come to England and just everything goes wrong. It's a wet summer as well that might have contributed to the whole thing. The century that Basab references though, that's the 101 from Gavaskar, has to be it. The only century that India hit in the series. So by deduction, it has to be it. And hopefully it works later on on the other half mm. of the clue. Made 101 out of 246 uh, that was in the first test of the series, followed by 58 out of 182. They still lose by 113, but if not for Gavaskar, it would have been so, so much worse. Yeah, as I said before, it was wet and cold and yuck, and Gavaskar was looking to attack Willis and Old, whatever he could, especially against the short ball, Jeff. Well, it's interesting because I was speaking to him about this on commentary um, when Coley got the 100 in Ahmedabad, yep. and having been looking back at Gavaskar's record, there, there's this that was the end of a nearly three-year drought for him. They played much less test cricket over that period, but he hadn't made 100. He'd had that amazing first series in, in the Windies. And he spoke about it as, he said, during that that Windies series, a couple of his hundreds he'd been dropped early on in the slips. I think Sobers had put him down a couple of times. And so he got this idea in his head that maybe he was no good. Maybe he was just wasn't actually very good. He just got lucky that first time and, and he'd been found out after that. And he said that 100 in England when he came out and peeled it off, that was chanceless. There, there were no false shots and that was the point where he actually believed that he could play test cricket. You know, extraordinary to hear someone of that ability say that, but he didn't fully believe in himself until after that England 100. That okay. was the turning point. Oh, that probably is why Basab's pointed to this in his clue because it has such 
resonance for him. But yeah, he, he it's an interesting record for him in England. He made four hundreds against England, only two in England, but one of them is the famous two twenty one at the Oval in nineteen seventy nine, which people still speak about to this day. A really important hundred to get his career going again that you're talking about there, and, and then a, an all timer two two one. What would have been five years on, so one two on, and that was one of the great chases as well. They were set four hundred and thirty eight, which of course, was the number that South Africa got against Australia in, in a one-day or in 2006, but this was the original 438 game. And they got so close, eight for 429. So they were they were nine runs away from breaking, well, what was then the world record from Leeds 1948, since been broken a couple of times. But yes, uh, and then later in the summer, Pakistan have a, a, a much better time of it under Intikar Balam. Now, how about this? I said India only won five games, and these were full tours, right? They played every county, minor counties, universities, Duke of Norfolk's 11, the, the works. Pakistan played 22 matches, and they were invincible. We talk about the 48 Aussies. What about the 74 Pakistanis? Now, I know it's three draws in the test matches, but the point still stands. They did not lose a game on their entire wow. tour of England in 1974. And this is where oh. I think Basab's point about Anglo history is bolstered, you know, that I've never heard about that before. That is new to me. And I reckon yeah. if Australia went um, through us, well, of course, 48 a bit of an outlier because it was post-war, it was Bradman's last trip, it was all of sure. that. But even if Australia went undefeated in England now, it would be a reference point. But yeah, the 74 Pakistanis, not quite so much. Now, on this one, a close and competitive draw at Leeds to begin, which is England's 500th test match, I should say. A poor draw at Lord's Follows with more rain. Then at the Oval, the third test match. It's a boring draw, but Zahir Abbas hits his second England double. Now, similar to Gavaska here in a way, that Zahir Abbas, who hit that extraordinary 274 three years earlier in 1971 in just his second test match and his first in England. He hadn't hit a century in between at all. So he's got his first two tons in test cricket, 274 at Edgbaston in 71 and 240 at the Oval three years later in 1974 mm. in a tally of 600 to ensure that England couldn't snatch the series 1-0. Zir Habas has got one of the great careers. He was known as the Asian Bradman and again, but we don't sort of talk about him anywhere near as much as we do others. He went to Gloucestershire yep. in 72 and stayed there for 13 seasons and absolutely dominated in those famous glasses of his. Huge numbers, including 11 centuries in a season in 1976 when he averaged 75. In 1981, five years later, 10 more centuries in a campaign that netted him over 2,300 runs at an average of 89. He was one of 25 men to reach 100 first-class hundreds, getting... 108 of those but the only Asian no one from India has done it you know because of the way it's structured it's been really the case that you need to play county cricket to pretty much get there or, or tour England routinely in the case of Bradman well Bradman's the only one that really meets that ticks that box having made so many hundreds having not played county cricket and being the yeah. outlier across the board full stop really Bradman but Zahir Abbas gets to that mark in 658 innings 100 hundreds that's the same as Viv and, you know, when you consider it took Colin Cowdery over 1,000 innings to make it to 100 hundreds, Hobbs 821 innings to get to 100 hundreds, only Boycott, Hick, Hutton, Compton and Bradman got there quicker than Zahir. And as I said before, the only man of subcontinental extraction to get to that mark. Back to the 240, 
Just to finish off here, it joins with Sonny's 101 to reach the 341 pledge. I'm, I'm pretty certain mm-hmm. this is the right answer. He made no more centuries against England, though. Just the two doubles, but nevertheless, an average of 52. Over 5,000 runs at 45 in 78 test matches spanning 1969 to 1985. He lost, lost a bit of cricket through World Series there as well in the middle. And nearly 35,000 first-class runs at 52 with the 108 centuries we mentioned before. Deserves to be spoken of, as Basab says, as one of the very best to ever do it. I think you're right. And we've, from memory, we've had one story time answer about Zahir Abbas that was more about the Pakistan-India matches that he played and, and his exploits there. I remember watching some footage of him because, you know, that it wasn't something that had come up before and, and how graceful he looked and how he was one of those players where it didn't look like he actually hit the ball. It, like it seemed impossible that the ball mm. was going to the boundary because he would just he would just wave the bat somewhere near the ball and he was hitting sixes like that as well at times in in short-form cricket too. So, yeah, a, a player who is routinely underrated and I think we've spoken about someone like Yunus Khan in this way as yep. well and it tends to maybe it's a, maybe it's more a Pakistani player thing because, you know, someone like Yunus is in that bracket with Jaya Wardner, with Sangakara, with those kind of hugely successful players, you know, 30, what is it, 33, 34 test hundreds? I think it's 34 tonnes and 33 50s, you know, one of <laughs> very few to have more hundreds and 50s. I mean, yep. someone who made 100 in every country that he toured against every opponent, you know, an extraordinarily complete record and, again, doesn't get mentioned in that same kind of breath. So there is a, a pattern there and... Um, we're, we're right to draw some attention to it. Now, I have a proposition for you, Adam, which okay. is maybe instead of the revisits, maybe we should do some confirmations before I get kicked out of here. Because sure. maybe rather than focusing on the ones we didn't get right, let's focus for a minute on the <laughs> ones we did because there are bloody heaps of them um, and yeah, we haven't yeah. done confirmations for a while and maybe we should rattle off a few before this ends. So I would like to start with Tambo who sent through the nerd pledge of $5.10. He said he loved the Stan McCabe stories. And in the end, and I'm very pleased with this, I was correct about the pledge being Gordon Tamblin, who was Tambo's grandfather. He says, Jeff, the correct spelling with a G, Tamblin, was not Tambo's father, but was his uncle. So there were three generations of Tamblins that we'd found. Two of them had played first-class cricket. And Tambo had sent in a nerd pledge. That was his contribution to the cricket universe. And this all came about because in a Stan McCabe 11 playing against a Bradman 11, Gordon Tamblin came on as a subfielder and took a catch off Bradman. So Tambo says, there was a photo on the wall of the house I grew up in titled, Out First Ball, Bradman, Bold Alice Caught Tamblin, uh-huh. which was pride of place in the family home. 510 was the number of Gordon Tamblin's Victorian first-class cap. And Tambo says, thank you for indulging my desire to hear about my grandfather, who I never truly knew. And I identify with that, Tambo. Both of my grandfathers died before I was born, so there's always that mystery of the, the, the grandparent who you didn't get to have anything to do with. So uh, I'm glad that we could tell you a few cricketing stories about some of the feats that Gordon Tamblin performed playing against Bradman in Sheffield Shield cricket over a number of years. A nice one. What a great place to start. Uh, 300 was Matt near the Gabba, who I'm yet to meet. I know you've had a chance to have a beer with Matt and I look forward to it at some point. Or better still, to taste his... Uh uh, his uh, wood fire oven pizzas that he's been making and posting on the Discord page. We n- nailed it. 300 was Tom Moody's day out at the Gabba and his first day of international cricket. 
He says here, you weren't allowed to sit on the dog track, so we all lined up in general admission and waited till the first ball, then en masse ran past the nominal security guards. Most punters had 4X smuggled in their esky under the salad sandwiches. I dead set thought Moody was going to clear the Clem Jones stand at the Stanley Street end. The crowd cheered so loudly as Simon O'Donnell chipped one down the ground and head back for a second run, bringing up the neat 300. All that and a comedy Dean Jones run out. I didn't leave early. We've got a couple from one of the episodes I did with Bharat Dead Eye Dick. Uh, Shyam Sundaraman says, kudos on solving my nerd pledge of $5.80. Excellent and comprehensive discussion on Sadagopan Ramesh, the former Indian opener. I think that is one of my favourite answers ever. I don't know if you... It's from the Delhi episode, which you may have listened to in a delirious fever haze, Adam, but it's worth going back to the um, Sadagopan Ramesh answer. It has some extraordinary unexpected twists uh jim at raja also from that episode with barat's answer said awesome job with my pledge of 568 loved hearing about the sachin tendulkar bar incident uh, that took place in the, the caribbean you'll have to go back to that answer to find out what it was he says after i pledged barat and adam also featured in the 81 all out podcast so i was armed with my second clue but barat nailed it first time can't wait to send you another pledge so, yes, it related to the 81 all-out game um, on ah. that particular Caribbean tour. Very good. Luke Kneebone, Jeff, you talked about the 150th anniversary of the staggering Waddle Flat win and wild links that were scattered all through that. We ended up with the 41 wickets for 12 out of that, didn't we? Um, <laughs> Somehow. So, for, yeah, 40, for, 41 for, for 112. Yeah, 41 for 112, that's right. Luke said he had to listen back twice to work out what you were doing. <laughs> Fantastic. I wasn't aware of that follow-up match. I'm pissed off they removed the pitch at Waddle Flat in the 1990s. It's now a pony club. I'm pretty sure it wasn't even England's first loss in Australia, just in Victoria, which is true. Have you had a look at that, Jeff, yeah, retrospectively? Yeah, I validated that. It, um, they did lose a game to a combined Victoria and New South Wales team in Sydney. So it was their first loss in the colony of Victoria. Understood. Uh, but that's, uh, yes, that's uh, why he thought it was funny they built a plaque for it and kind of makes it a bullshit thing to celebrate, like 150. So Luke's with you there, Jeff, on that front. But I now know uh, there was a second match and maybe it needs recognition. I'd ridden past it heaps of times before I noticed anything. I do love that such an unassuming place has such history. Well, in fact, Luke, there were four touring English teams who played at Wattle Flat. The H.H. Stevenson 11 that we talked about in 1862, the W.G. Grace one in 1874. Ivo Bly came there, the man so closely associated with the invention of the Ashes in 1882, and George Vernon's team came in 1887, although George Vernon didn't play himself. But they did tour there. You've had four touring English teams at Waddle Flat. Comprehensive, to say the least. I like it. Sarah Berman with her $5 flat. She said that was indeed recognising the 500th premier first grade appearance for Rob Aitken, the first in Australia to achieve the milestone. Rob is still playing first grade for UTS North Sydney and breaking more records while coaching our under 18 girls team that his daughter plays for. Truly one of the good guys. Thank you, Sarah. Dane Hansett, 861. Jeff, you were right with your first answer. 861 is the cap number of Mitch Perry. He played at Dane's local club in Wangaratta, Bruck CC, and he played with his dad in his only senior premiership win back in 2010. How cool is that? Dane goes on to say, I can still remember seven or eight-year-old Mitch coming in off the long run and bowling to me in the nets from halfway down the wicket. I can't wait to see what the future holds for him. He's having a great season. Also coming along pretty well with the bats. 
And Dane was um, also chuffed to see Lavington used in the uh, Shield game late in the season, but he didn't make it to the game despite his best efforts because he was, at the time, 110,000 others at the MCG watching Ed Sheeran. So that's fair enough that he, that he missed the game at, at Lavington. And I should also say that Dana started a Facebook page. It's called Dano's Leg Spin. It's really fun. I've hit the subscribe button, been engaging with a bit of the content he's putting up there with his thoughts and facts and stats and all the rest of it. So Dane Hanstead, we love you. $5.66 from Nathan Brown was indeed the story about his grandfather, Walter Furphy, yes. who may be some connection to Adam's Furphy antecedents, watching Dean Jones play at the race course ground in Durham. The five sixty six is because Dean Jones made 566 runs in the 89 Ashes and he played at Durham starting in 1992. Nathan says, shared with the family in Australia and the UK who all agreed Walter would have loved being on an Australian cricket podcast uh, you must have another Nathan Brown as a fan because I've never pledged about Irish cricket before, but maybe <laughs> I will in the future. Good commitment there, Nathan. I like that. Please do. Also an email from Gareth Wilson who said to answer our question, the racecourse ground gets its name because it sits next to the river. So it's the rowing racecourse, not the horses, and ah. there's not much betting on university rowing. I bet there is now. There's a lot of betting on, you know, like seventh-tier Russian football Oh. Whatever, whatever you can get a live stream of, there probably is a good market on the university yeah. rowing now. I did see Owen Morgan giving a, a most earnest and enthusiastic endorsement of a betting company in India during the week. Yeah. Good to see that he's using his um his time well. Well, he wouldn't have enough money, so I mean, you know, after you've been the captain of England for eighteen years, yeah, you'd be short on a quid. You'd, you'd want to make sure that you you get your market value. Sean Tun, 5'10", not to be confused with Sean Tung, my mate from school who I mentioned the other day. Tunza as he goes. We nailed his pledge for Darren Berry. Well, you did rather, Jeff. Wonderfully answered. Thank you for taking the time to go through some stumpings and your Greg Chappell Cricket Centre memories. Mm -hmm. That might have been me. Dom, <laughs> Dom Griffiths with his $13.32. It was indeed the point where the Netherlands yes. needed 1,332 runs per over against South Africa when there was one ball to go in the 2007 World Cup. Extraordinary stuff from both of you, Adam and Dom, to work that out. It was right, of course it was, says Dom, who helped us get to the answer. It's a strange old game when a required run rate can get that high. Keep up all the great work, you and Jeff and your other excellent colleagues. I love it. Well, it's been great to have the, the help of those other colleagues over the last few months when we've needed it. Joel Emerson, I can see his book on my shelf right here. It's not about how far I cycle. He was 184. Uh, Jeff said what New Zealand defended in the 2000 Women's World Cup win, and you were correct with that. I'd hoped to revisit New Zealand to attend last year's World Cup, but couldn't due to COVID restrictions. It seems a lifetime ago. I hope we get to see Joel again some, at some point on his bike. He made his way all over Europe and all over the UK in, in 2019. I think he's actually prioritising the Women's Football World Cup in Australia this year. But, yeah, he's a lovely rider and a great contributor to what we do. Jai Sharma with his $1.14. We said that was England's score when Glenn McGrath caught Michael Vaughan with that famous catch in Adelaide in 2002. Jai says, my mates heckled me for this question being too easy. I figured you get enough cryptic clues that a gentle half volley would be appreciated. It was good to relive that time. <laughs> you are quite right. It is nice to have a gentle half volley occasionally. Thank you. Brendan Crabb, 203. Now, Jeff, you eventually found the Bradman game at Barrel where Tubby took one for three from two overs and 
Brendan says, I wasn't sure you were going to get there, but your answer was correct. Growing up in the Southern Highlands, those Bradman 11 games were memorable occasions. Adam's comments reminded me that it's been too long since I visited the museum. I managed to nab a spot there for my year 10 work experience. The week started well, but I think by the end they were cranky that I spent too much time playing the cricket video game they had next to the tour. <laughs> that sounds like the sort of thing I would do. I did my year 10 work experience at the Dandenong Sports Depot, playing with the bats for one week, and the second week of it, working at the Hawthorne Football Club. I don't think I did a lot of work in those two weeks. Mm-hmm. I was just a, just happy to be there. Oh, if the work experience kid is playing the video game, that's the best possible use of both resources. Right? That's just true. Keep, keep where, did you, where did you do your year 10 work experience? Um, I didn't have – I think I was suspended that week. Yeah, I think I wasn't allowed. <laughs> I, had a, um, I had an interesting schooling career. Adam, uh, Max Hanlon with $1.92, he says, it was indeed the 192 strike rate of Elisa Healy in the Women's T20 World Cup final in 2020. So a couple of Women's World Cup final clues coming through there. And a couple of high strike rate answers for you this week. All right, we've got 20.79, Jeremy Brown. Jeff talked about Imtiaz Ahmad somehow. Now, Jeremy goes on to add, thank you for a delightful diversion on the basis of my number. I don't think my numbers have been all that difficult previously and certainly not stretching to decades old Pakistan wicket keepers. As I can no longer remember what banal Ashes number was going through my mind at the time, I'm more than happy to take your marvellous response as correct, just as we like it, Jeremy. That That is almost the perfect confirmation email. When you like, ah, uh, you're... Your answer was better than what I wanted you to do anyway. That, that'll work just well. Yes, the two sweetest words in the English language. Default. 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 Um, I'm glad too because Imtiaz Ahmed came up as well in the wicketkeepers making centuries in the same test match oh, that's right. as yeah. the other wicketkeeper, which he didn't do, but he made one in a test match that started on the same day as another test match in which another <laughs> wicketkeeper made 100. So he's had a couple of runs on the show the in stuff, recent weeks. The stuff that we find out in our research oh, for this, bloody hell. Good Lord. Simon Butcher with his £4.06, he said, it was indeed the slightly interpolated number 40.06 that was Stephen Fleming's batting average. Uh, another one solved, says Butch. Nick Dempsey, 520. Jeff, you talked about Trent Bolt's highest score in test matches, 52 not out. El Bolto, says Nick. Dead on, Jeff. Thanks, mate. Peter Brown's 314 was the great Alfred Min on the roof of the carriage after making 100 with a broken leg and then nearly losing the leg after being driven to London. That is correct, says Peter, who has updated his pledge and would like to remind people that you can do it too. If you want to keep playing Nerd Pledge and you've played before, you just change the number and we add it to the list. Proof there there's no statute of limitations on confirmations or revisits. I reckon I answered that Alf Min's story a year ago with Daniel, probably about yeah April 2022. So great to hear from you again, Peter, and great to have your re-up. Ash309, uh, and Ashwin, Barat said, Sayweg's first triple, the 309 against Pakistan in 2004. And Ash says, I wanted to hear your take on that wonderful innings, the first Indian to ever score a triple century in test cricket. But yes, not enough for him to get a grandstand, which is uh, what we were talking about when we were at Delhi a couple of weeks ago. It was extraordinary, wasn't it? The huge Gautam Gambier grandstand and the rather comparatively modest Verenda Sewag gate. Gautam Gambier made nine test hundreds. Sewag made 23, including the first two triples for India. And, oh, you have the gate, buddy. 
the other guys running for politics. I was so going to say that Gautam Gambia has got broader sway, broader sway. Uh-huh. Uh, next up is you, Jeff. Uh, Danish Babar says the two ninety nine <laughs> was indeed the two ninety nines that Ms. Balhak made in his final series. Yes, for Ms. Bar says Danish. I disconnected from cricket after two thousand and five when it was taken off TV in the UK, and then totally disengaged after the twenty ten spot fixing business. I remember my dad calling me in twenty sixteen, telling me to watch the highlights that evening, which was the day of the Ms. Bar push ups in London. Ms. Bar made me love cricket again. One well, of my Favourite test matches, that 2016 Lords test. I loved every second of those four days at Lords. 3-0-6-9 in Hungarian. Uh, Is it HUF? Florence. Yes, HUF. We've actually got a second Florent pledge in this week. Alan Edgar's re-ups. I have no idea what his clue's about, but I like the fact that we now have two pledges in in that currency. Gabor Tarok, international cricketer. Gabor Tarok. Uh, Thank you for nailing the Andrew Feckety theme. Was off the long run, a la Wayne Holdsworth. I wonder if he or Brett Lee had the longer run-up. Good question. But we got there. Very impressed with your background research on the etymology of Feckety. That was uh, one that we did, or you did, Jeff, when we were at Nagpur when the test ended early. I remember hearing that story with the lovely background music that was a, mm-hmm. and getting bitten by endless mosquitoes. And speaking of Nagpur... Tangentially, Scott Munro's 279, he says, I hope you're enjoying India and watching a bits and pieces cricketer wreak havoc. Not my words, talking about Ravindra Jadeja. <laughs> he says, you guys got my 279 pledge of Ben Stokes during the Ashes in 2013-14. Oh, the runs that he made in that series nailed it in one. Happy with that one. Uh, Bernard Sayer, uh, 450. I should say Chad Sayers finished up as a district cricketer this week, Jeff. He played his last game for, I think it was Woodville West Torrens. Or, uh, no, my, that, that's the amalgamated footy club, isn't it? I think played for Woodville mm-hmm. or West Torrens, one or the other. Um, but yes, Chad, great man. In short, you have nailed the 450, Bernard Sayer says. I don't know a thing about uh, the fellow who took 450 against the Pakistanis in 1982, but I love the fact that a country lad had a day out against a team that won a World Cup a decade later. Just wonderful. Would have loved to have been installed that day. Nigel Brown with 340. Uh, thanks for revisiting my nerd pledge on Storytime 122. John Embry was a good guest, but actually I was aiming for Roger Harper oh. with a first-class average of 34. Oh. Hence the nerd pledge. He says, I led you down the wrong path with the bicentennial clue. I was referring to the bicentennial yeah. MCC match at Lords when Harper famously ran out Graham Goose. I tried to do this. I tried to make that answer that, and I just couldn't mm. find a number that worked. I looked through the scorecard. I, I was like, it has to be Harper and Gooch. Like, believe me, Nigel, mm. this wasn't for a lack of effort or a lack of trying. And we've, um, and we went the other way with, with Embers. I don't know why we went that way, but I'm glad we got there somehow in the end. Uh, Guy Hornsby, his 499 last week on the revisit special was indeed the England sticky wicket leathering of Australia in the third test of 1891. A final word, nerd pledge, roll call and a half. Really enjoyable hearing more detail. A proper old school cricket game. Can't believe they never really played tests in Adelaide again until 2021. That's a remarkable, that's isn't it? A, a remarkable. Yeah. They never played it there at all. Long absence from the game there. Um, (laughs) Angus Digby's $3.74 was indeed the first-class career economy rate of Harold Fry. Yes. F-R-E-I, if you're wondering. Some people were confused. The Barassi line clue, says Angus, related to two of his sons playing in the NRL, which is interesting. I did look into this. So Jackson Fry 
played a couple of games for the New Zealand Warriors last year and then got cut. So I think that's it for him. Brendan Fry has been in the feeder systems for the Roosters, the Broncos and the Cowboys, but I couldn't find any record of him ever playing senior footy. Well, you know what they should do, both Jackson and Brendan, they should start yeah. playing cricket. They should do as their old man did after playing six oh. games for Footscray and then went up and moved to Queensland and became a tearaway. Yeah. Why don't Jackson and Brendan get put on the fast track to that's play it. shield cricket? Get the pads on, gentlemen. Get the pads on. Your dad made his first-class debut at 31 against (laughs) England, smashed 50 off 30 balls and took a bag of wickets. Come on. Get the pads on. on. Get the ball in hand. Now, Damien Sherry says he played at the same club as Harry Fry. We got a lot of correspondence about Harry Fry, actually. (laughs) He he did answer a question I had, which is that Harry Fry did win a first-grade premiership in 91-92 because he'd, he'd lost a lot of finals. So he did finally get one. He won a QAFL footy premiership with Kedron in 1980 and got reported several times in the last quarter. (laughs) Most of the sixes on debut were off Vic Marks, plenty of stories. And Kevin Hockley says he also has plenty of Harry stories and that he remembers lining up against him in his first grade debut as an 18-year-old. Glenn Finkeld was writing in about Harry Fry in the McDonald's Cup in the best kits that they ever wore in that competition. So there was a lot more Harry Fry uh, response than I was expecting. I didn't know that Kedron had an Australian rules presence. I've I've spent a disproportionate amount of my life in Kedron, which is where Wayne Swan lives, and thus on his uh, on his back deck there, and uh, staying in his spare room occasionally as well. Hello to Swanee if you're listening. Unlikely, but he might be. Sean McGiven, of course you were right with the four one 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 two. Jeff, nicely found. I had hoped that when you stopped replying, that meant you found it. <laughs> as Adam says, story time is about the stories, but sometimes it's nice to indulge in playing with the form. Well, I had a lot of fun on that particular rabbit hunt, Sean, so don't worry about that. Chris Unwin's 12 pounds 33 was Jason Gallian's test average of (laughs) 12.33. Thanks to your explanation, he says, I learned that Jason Gallian and I went to the same Oxford College. They never (laughs) mentioned that on open day. (laughs) They should have. Take down Cecil Rhodes. Put up Jason Galley. I tell you what, had they mentioned that, I'm tipping Chris would have been even more an enthusiastic signer-upper to that particular Oxford College. Tim Minchin, not that one, six double zero. He's got a few clues and pledges and numbers and revisits and confirmations in the in the pipeline right now, Tim. We said hundreds for both keepers, or Jeff said. I humbly retroactively resubmit my number as 400 and my clue as Carey nearly made it five. I feel slightly better knowing that even if I'd given you the correct number, it would have been just as hard to solve. Both keepers tunning up is even rarer than I thought and bizarre that it never happened until 2002. We got there in the end and the story was told. Amelia Vine can confirm that four. 03 was the cap number for Jack Flavel. She says, probably the only family friend I will ever know to play test cricket. Understated is not the half of it. I doubt anyone much in my hometown of Barmouth even knew that he played. He nearly didn't as he was struck by lightning playing football with the army in 1948, sadly killing two of the players. He survived but lost all his hair. I meant to mention this in the answer last week but left it out. I kind of brushed over this year when he was deciding whether he'd play for West Bromwich Albion or Worcestershire. He had that game of football with the army post-war and um, yeah there was this tragedy on the field at which he was witness to I didn't know about the losing his hair though that's um that's an extra bit of color that you can only know if you're a family friend as, as Amelia was great to hear from your meals out of Forsyth 930 it was the 9.3 overs for Stuart Broad to bowl out Australia at Trent Bridge in 2015 Adam got it right and it says and as Jeff adds don't overcomplicate it which is fine I, I, I did like being able to tell a bit of a Steve Finn story on on the way out there as well, though. (laughs) 
<laughs> it wouldn't be right to have an Anna pledge without a, without a Steve Finn story. <laughs> Michael Holden's 23-30 that led us to the stories of the only two players in first-class history to make <laughs> a century on debut and take a wicket with their first delivery in first-class cricket. Kim Hughes and Frederick Stocks, twinned for life. Michael says, nailed it. Very impressed listening to Jeff work his way through it. Well, I wouldn't have got there without some help from you, Michael. He says, if you haven't already, I recommend Christian Ryan's book, The Golden Boy. That 1978 tour that Jeff speaks of was extremely interesting. Here's my answer sheet and the clues originally provided. This is what I liked most. On the Discord, which is the chat page we have, once Michael confirmed that the answer was correct, he posted up a screenshot of a sheet where he'd listed every clue that he'd sent us and some other notes that he'd taken about the answer so that other patrons could read through it for their own edification. <laughs> this is the level of nerdery that I love um, amongst our listeners. Uh, that, well, first of all, that'll end up on the Wikipedia page that's been set up or the, the internal wiki that, mm-hmm. that, that has been established for all of our nerd pledge answers. Good stuff. And, um, yeah, maybe Rob Kingston's um, first-class taboos answer. I wonder whether possibly kind of sort of we might end up in Something the same like place that. as Michael Holden. I don't know. We'll find out when we do that revisit. Paul Reeve 260. My answer was indeed Jack Leach and I enjoyed the discussion about Night Watchman. The uniqueness I was thinking of was actually whether he's the only specialist bowler to win a Tests Player of the Match award without taking a wicket. Very good. I do believe Gillespie and Broad took wickets alongside their famous innings. I might throw that open to Discord. What do you reckon, Jeff? Mm, mm, yeah, well, so initially, I mean, I was just thinking, has any bowler one player of the match while bowling only three overs in the match? But I suppose taking not taking a wicket adds to that. Um, I can't think of anybody else off the top of my head, put it that way. Sam Brown said his $2.82 can be crossed off the list. The second international match I attended and the first centuries I saw with Hick in the first innings, Mark War in the second. I was standing at the fence below the Brawongal stand calling out for Graham Hick to sign my signature bat <laughs> during the majority of the Australian innings. Fantastic. I'm, um, I'm, I'm really happy that that's right. Thanks, Sam. James Philbrook, 681, was Chris Cairns bowling figures when he made 80 in that outstanding all-round performance in 1999 at the Oval. Nailed it, guys. And Francis Kiepfer, our last one. The answers about Alistair Cook and Monty Panis are coming from different Bedford schools, the Bedford Modern and the Bedford School. Francis says, I went to the Modern School, which is not the posh one with all the practice pitches, so we were always Monty fans. Great to hear Adam talk about Queen's Park too. My grandparents emigrated from Italy to Bedford in the 1950s, part of a huge immigration drive to bring Italians to work in the brickworks in Stewartby. Queen's Park came to be known as Little Italy and Bedford still has the highest proportion of Italian residents in the UK. As Adam described, in recent years, it has become home to many more people of South Asian heritage and it's great to hear more about the cricketing backstory. My nonna passed away a year ago and I've since moved north to Manchester, but I have lots of happy memories running around there. And there was a follow-up email as well from Matt Gaynor who wrote in to say Bedford School educated Monty Panesar. That was the cheaper school and offered more grants and bursaries, which is how I got in. (laughs) It was more likely to attract kids from Queen's Park, although Monty came from Luton. Sir Alistair and Monty were both younger than me, but there were three first-class cricketers in the years above. Paul Owen, a Canadian spinner, played three times for Gloucestershire. 
also known as Glamorgan. Neil Stanley played a few years at Northants and would have been rich in the T20 era. Alan Fordham played a long career at Northants with 10,000 mm. first-class runs, nearly played for England and went on to big things with the MCC. The production line ended at my year after they failed to notice me batting at nine and fielding at mid-on for the first 11. <laughs> the tragedy of the overlooked, Matt. And that brings us to the end of what is definitely the longest confirmation section we've ever had with about 40 of them and the end of another episode of Storytime. And you've not been kicked out. And yes, Matt Gaynor no. was one of the um, the five final nerds who were, who were at the Just Jones concert a few weeks ago as well. So uh, I look forward to seeing. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go to Allo Darlin in their comeback gig with Matt Gaynor, Alan Edgar, and Ben Gardner from Wisden <laughs> later in the year. Happy days. <laughs> Together at last, uh, um, dreamed in a party. Right, you're right. You, you've not been kicked out, but you probably will. So we should let you yep. go. It has been Storytime 129. It's been uh, it's been a most enjoyable one. Thank you for listening. Thank you to the Lord's Tabs for helping us with all our marathon prep and all the rest of it. The, the link in the notes there. We haven't talked about it today, but we did a lot on the weekly show. If you want to make a contribution to that, and indeed, if you want to become a patron and join the fun and join our Discord, there is so much going on not only on the platform, but in, in our podcast more generally at the moment. We'd love to have you as part of our little family over here. Patreon.com forward slash the final word. Jeff. That's it. That was Storytime 129. Keep your ears on the feed. We have the weekly show in the middle of the week, Storytime on the weekend, and some other bits and pieces coming through if and when ad hoc over the next few weeks before we wind up together in England in June when World Test Championship and Ashes Madness begins. Uh, this has been the final word. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins. We'll see you. Have a nice weekend. I had to go about it, write it out. 